UK News Podcast subscribers. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluth, and today it is Thursday, December 3rd, and joining me here in the studio in Seoul is Dr. Bernhard Zeliger of the Hans Seidel Foundation to talk about his projects in North Korea, and later on we'll talk a little bit about German unification too. This podcast is hosted by NK News, your specialist source for trusted information on North Korea. Get behind the headlines at nknews.org. For even deeper analysis and cutting-edge data on the DPRK, check out NK Pro, the comprehensive platform for professionals monitoring the Korean Peninsula. Contact us at membership at nknews.org for a free trial of NK Pro. My guest today, Dr. Bernard Seliger, is resident representative of the Hans Seidel Foundation in Korea, based in Seoul, where he consults with NGOs, academic and public institutions on questions of unification and initiating the projects of on sustainable development in the inter-Korean border area with Gosong County and Kangwon Province, and until the COVID-19 pandemic was also a frequent visitor to North Korea. Welcome on the show, Dr. Zeliger. Thanks for coming. Good morning. Good morning. So, Dr. Zeliger, you are the country head of the Hans Seidel Foundation. To help our listeners understand, can you briefly sketch out the landscape of German political foundations? What, broadly speaking, is their mission and function? What foundations exist? And what is their political allegiance and leaning? And which ones are active here in South Korea? To understand about the quite unique system of German political foundation, you should go back to really the end of the Second World War when we tried to uh, rebuild a a democratic West Germany and uh, especially the Americans uh, consulted us to say you need really not a uniform state-led civic education, but you should have in a pluralist way. And what we came up with was then to say for those political uh, parties or streams which are represented in the parliament, there's a possibility to set up foundations. Though these foundations are strictly legally speaking NGOs and they are not part of the party or owned by the party, but close to certain parties and they are publicly funded, so they are not funded by any party or so. And then these um, foundations do civic education. And when Germany, uh, West Germany, through the economic miracle and so on, became richer later and gave its own development aid to developing countries, these uh, foundations also became involved in development work around the world. So that we have now currently six um, political foundations who have offices abroad. And our foundation, Hans Seidel Foundation, is one of the smaller ones. We are headquartered in Munich, close to the Christian Social Union, which is uh, in the field of uh, center-right parties and also one of the governing parties in the current government of uh, Bundeskanzler Rin Merkel. Uh, Our foundation has offices in... Uh, 35 countries around Mm. the world, mostly developing countries. And in this uh, context, Korea is quite unique because it's obviously South Korea is not a developing country, but the situation on the Korean peninsula is so tense. And we are here to do a project on reconciliation on the peninsula and on uh, peace and also to do some projects on uh, capacity building in North Korea. Uh, Okay, that's a a great answer. So... um, Yeah, uh, you mentioned that that South Korea is a unique case uh, because South Korea is now its own donor of overseas development assistance to other countries. It may be the only uh, donor country in the world which is now also, uh, which has a Hans Seidel office, right? That's exactly uh, the case. And I'm personally living with my family here, quite happy to live in such a modern and vibrant city like Seoul Mm. and uh, with such a good infrastructure. And so while many of my colleagues have to live in the countries they work in but clearly since our fund come from the development ministry mm. in for this project the german development ministry or sometimes from the european union we are uh, mainly caring that we spend the money really on developing and that would mean on peace on the korean peninsula right. um, and on projects in dprk or north korea now was that always the mission of the Hans Seidel Foundation in South Korea or has that changed over time? It had changed over time. When we first came here in 1987, it was just a newly industrializing country and we had projects on rural development. Our foundation being based in Bavaria, which is mm. a very modern country but also very rural, had always a strong focus on developing farming, developing 
than sustainable farming. And here we brought, for example, the idea that farmers together buy machines in a so-called machine ring, which is still existing. We worked with Nonhop, the cooperatives federation oh, in yeah. the beginning. We had village development project. And then from 1993, uh, my after German unification. Yes, yep. exactly. My predecessor, he was a... Uh, former mayor of a um, city um, near Munich, mm -hmm. and he uh, started a program on local administration because from 1993 we had again the self-administration, the autonomous local administration. That was very important. But when I came in 2002, it was still a good program, but we said we really want to focus everything on the north, mm -hmm. and this includes for us also the border area. And there's right. a special story behind that because Germany had also a border area and there was this strip which was literally called the death strip because mm. a east german soldier shot into it when refugees tried to flee to the west right. um, it was after all the border fences or so there was still the strip of a kilometer or so where they could shoot in which was their own territory and after unification that so-called death strip became a protected area ah. because it's, uh, it was always off limits and it's now we call it a, a green belt so it's Noxecti. a nature zone now yes it's oh. a nature zone it's um, almost 1400 kilometer wow. long sometimes very slim but it's the largest habitat yeah. system or network in europe now wow wow that's very impressive um okay so uh you've already answered the question that the hans heidel foundation has been here since 1987 just before the olympics but at the, in that year when Kore south korean democratization was really beginning exactly. we had that first uh directly elected presidential election when uh, norteo was elected so it's a very interesting time to come here and you've been here how long i've been here since 1998 in korea and i was first invited uh, through a program it was still in the kim jong sam presidency yeah. this program of globalization and they uh, founded new schools for international studies in universities and i was invited to the hanguk university of foreign study graduate school of international and area studies and wow. i had four very exciting years i was a young PhD then and yeah. it was my first teaching experience and clearly it uh, awakened my love for Korea which I didn't know before yeah. at all. I have to say a very similar experience for me yes uh, I came in 96 and, and it was for one year and did not intend to uh, to stay quite as long as I did. Um, okay so you uh, you mentioned that uh, Hans Heidel Foundation supports the process of reconciliation on the Korean Peninsula um, very important topic for both Korea and for Germany, with, with the German experience. How does the Hans Seidel Foundation support that process of reconciliation? Well, first of all, to say that it is for foreign organizations not possible to do anything formally in, in the inter-Korean process. Mm. And the reason mm. is that there were um, certain principles established by Kim Il-sung, the North Korean founder of the state and president, who said, uh, among others, that the unification of Korea should be achieved by Koreans alone. I think right. it was... This is that phrase, Uri Minjokiri, exa exactly. right, that we hear again exactly, and again. So yes. Amongst ourselves, amongst our folk, to use a German yeah, word. Well, exactly. And, and there is a background, clearly, which is the colonialization mm -hmm. and the idea that Korea was always interfered with by foreign powers, like mm -hmm. the division of Korea also, which is true. However, it might be sometimes impossible for the Koreans to come together themselves because of these big trenches between, I mean, lit literal and metaphorical between the two countries. Yeah. And what we try to do is in an international framework to bring both sides together on topics where they can agree. Now, you would say, on what can North and South mm. agree? You would sometimes think when you open the newspaper, they cannot agree on a single thing. Yeah. But it's not so true. There are issues, and among them now are, for example, issues of environmental protection, uh, renewable energy development and others where we say we can find a certain common ground that we can invite both parties into an international setting and then also support their um, interaction. And more to say about this is also that uh, we see as a big problem that North Korea since uh, really the 1990s had a, a big what I call a second disintegration or isolation phase. Actually mm -hmm. as a socialist state they had a, their own world socialist world but they were quite well integrated they worked with comic-con they worked with many states on a bilateral level they sent hundreds of students out and suddenly all of this was not possible partly for ideological reasons partly for monetary reasons because simply they had no money so now we have all these diplomats who are not anymore used to diplomacy really 
cannot go out mm. or only to diplomacy in a very hostile framework that is the nuclear crisis, the human rights situation. Mm-hmm. So we think it's good to have also to develop a practice of peaceful diplomacy, let's say like environmental diplomacy right. in fields which are not so political, but where they can still learn to interact friendly. You know, we've, we've done uh, almost 160 episodes now of the NK News podcast, and I, I think this is maybe the first time, or maybe the second time, uh, when we've been able to discuss conservation issues and, and uh, uh, issues about the environment with North Korea, so uh, regarding North Korea. So that's interesting. Uh, is North Korea involved in international fora like, say, the Paris uh, climate discussions and things like that? Uh, first of all, they are signatory to all the relevant um, treaties regarding the climate change. That is the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement. And it's quite interesting. They approached us, uh, it was 2007 or eight when they first became a signatory of the Kyoto Protocol and said, mm, what can we do in this field? We would like to do something like emissions trading. And a little bit informally said, maybe they thought we have no industry, we have clean air, we can sell that. Clearly, there's a monetary angle too to it. Right. And then we brought an expert that time from Indonesia, from a, a carbon trading group, and he explained all the preconditions to set up this. And first they said, we can never do that because there were an enormous amount of transparency. Right. Breach of sovereignty. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then they had to put everything on the internet. For example, uh, the design of their hydropower stations or of uh, wastewater plants, they said, we can never do that. But then they seem still under the old regime of Kim Jong-il, there seem to be two on-the-spot guidances where the leader said, you have to go on with this project. And then from 2010, we had five-year very intensive program to register hydropower plants and some other projects at the UNFCCC, which means United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that was technically very difficult. And there's many more advanced countries or open countries which can easily access the Internet where regularly these things failed, even in China. But finally, they did it, unfortunately, a little late because the whole idea was centered on the fact that there was a time when you could sell a ton of carbon, which you would not emit, which right. you would reduce for up to $20 or even 20 euro at mm. some time in Europe. But finally, when they were finished in 2012 or 13, then uh, the prices had crashed, which uh-huh. is a European problem because the Europeans didn't really want to pay so much for their energy. They pay high enough energy prices, they right. thought. So these projects were all registered, which was a success, yeah. but they didn't never start because they couldn't make the money they were supposed to make. But still, it was a good exercise and it included a lot of training on renewable energy uh, options mm. and also a lot of, uh, from their own side, we, we are not investors. I mean, we are just doing capacity building, yeah. but a lot of uh, investment, let's say, in hydropower plants in places like Hamgyong Namdo, uh, so South Hamgyong province or Kangwon province or... Uh, other places so it, i think they learned a lot by it and the first idea it was called clean development mechanism this one runs out now but new programs are coming we all know climate change is still before our door yeah. and the projects are still relevant i think so uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term capacity building briefly what is capacity building? is it a kind of training well that's uh, very important for us because we have a certain brief from our government what we can do and cannot do. And uh, basically the political foundations, and I should also say we are not alone here, but there are three more German political foundations, the Konrad Adenauer Foundation and Friedrich Naumann Foundation and Friedrich Ebert Foundation with very great colleagues here in Seoul. Mm. These uh, foundations, they are involved in training programs, in programs to promote in every country different thing, but let's say democracy, to promote women's rights, to promote entrepreneurship, to promote market economy. There's, there's a number of things depending on the country, but they are not there to build water pipelines, to build hydropower dams, to um, electricity lines, because we have a large government-owned company for that, the GIZ, which is much huger than uh, these foundations, and clearly the volume of money you need for that is mm-hmm. much bigger. Yeah. And we are also not involved in baking vitamin cookies or distributing food aid, which is 
humanitarian work, which is also very important, but where we have other um, actors like the Weltunger um, Hilfe, who are also uh, very active in, in BPRK, North Korea. So uh, we are really there in this midfield. But North Korea, again, is a very special place. There's no official development aid because uh, the, the preconditions for official development relations are not given. There's a minimum of transparency of mm. being able to move in the country, which are not given. So... Our projects, which include now projects on sustainable forestry and on nature protection, mm. they sometimes border on the technical. They, there might be technical aspects in it. And sometimes they also are clearly related to humanitarian mm. proposals. So we did two projects for the European Union, which were under the budget line of humanitarian work. But they were projects uh, where we focused mainly on training them. Now, North Korea over the years uh, has become famous for uh, trying to extract as much benefit and value as possible from these foreign groups like yours that go to North Korea. Is it difficult to explain to the, your North Korean partners or the North Korean government, look, this is the limits of what we can do. We can do this, the capacity building, but we can't do that. We're not here to build a power station for you. Well, first of all, you are right. Clearly, there is a very uh, strong focus on hardware which is not, by the way, a North Korean thing alone. It's in, in almost all developing countries. Clearly, we want tractors, we want cars, we want computers, we want whatever uh, equipment. Uh, we always say we cannot give this, and it's hard. Our partners understand that very well mm. and adapt very well. And one of the, the good things really in the development over the last, I would say now almost 30 years, is that while there was always this this uh, uh, propaganda slogan, nothing to envy, and mm. we have the best system in the world, but they are very open to learning. In that, actually, North and South Koreans are not so different. They like benchmarking. They like to see what's going on abroad, and uh, they are quite eager, especially because they are so closed up. Though that uh, is a point we can maybe later discuss because the intranet makes other things possible. I think very positive developments in a way, empowering people, giving them more knowledge also on an individual level. So there is this problem uh, that there's a hardware focus and uh, if it's not our partners but more the political level, we sometimes pushed and said, okay, you invest in that or that place and we say we are not there for that, it's yeah. not allowed. But over the last more than 15 years when we were active in, in D DPRK, they became more used to that. So that now uh, we, our main partner is the Ministry of Land and Environment Protection, MOLEP, and they quite well understand that. And we have, a, I would say, a very good working relationship. Mm. Now, earlier you said that uh, one of the things you like to do uh, as a foundation is to bring North Koreans and South Koreans together in international fora to discuss things that they can both agree on. And uh, this is an interesting point that... Uh, it's, it can be very difficult to get North Koreans and South Koreans in a bilateral uh, discussion. And I have to be careful even to use that word because, of course, they don't recognize that there are two Koreas. So, but when it's an international fora, when there are you know 20 or even 12 or maybe even just six countries there, uh, it, North and South Korea are happy to be, or especially North Korea, is happy to be one of them. But uh, you can't just have the two Koreas. It must be the two Koreas and the Mongolians, the Vietnamese, and, and some other people. Exactly. That, that's the idea. And uh, there are some fora where it automatically comes about. Let's say we um, had a program to uh, work together with the MOLAB, with the Minister of Environment, on joining the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands. Mm. It's a large international convention with 180 state partners. It's almost everybody. Well, almost everybody, and North Korea is number 180 now. Mm. But we are very happy about that. They joined two years ago, have already a tremendous work program there. And to do so, they had to do a lot of preconditions, again, which were politically sometimes sensitive. They had to, they were required to de designate two areas, which are Moondog, uh, which is a large wetland area, tidal flat area in the uh, west coast, in the in the Yellow Sea. Mm -hmm. And then it is Rason, uh, which is, uh, as probably yeah, most readers know, it's in, in the special economic zone up in the northeast. zone between uh, China, Russia, and and. And it has also, besides the special economic zones, these large lagoon lakes and the Tumen River estuary and it's of tremendous ecological and biodiversity importance. And these areas were designated. And even more, they needed to 
present what is called a wetland inventory. And they did, uh, and we had a small contribution to that, and we're glad, uh, a so-called wetland inventory of 53 most important wetlands. Among them, there were five, I think, on the borderline DMZ, mm. and four in the... Uh, on the on the west coast, but very close to the northern limit line. So these areas, which are also politically extremely yeah. sensitive, and where also our partners said, "Sorry, this is off limits, this military area." But they did surveys there, and very good ones. They provided maps, they provided lists of um, fauna and flora, and uh, it, it has really helped them, but also helps the international community to, to understand better what's going on there. Because in the end the ecology of that place and of South Korea and of the Yellow Sea area and of larger Asia-Pacific uh, so-called flyway, if you look at birds, migratory birds, yep. is all connected. Okay, yeah, I do want to go a, a bit more detailed into those uh, particular conservation projects, but that's a bit further down the line. Um, first of all, uh, you also, the Hans Eidel Foundation, also puts a, a special focus on regional development in the area near the demilitarized zone uh, in South Korea, so in, in Gosong County, and what's the one next to it? Well, we do in, uh, work on various counties, but maybe as a background, we, mm. we said there was this German development that the former borderline became uh, a, nature uh, preserve. Uh, uh, yeah, a national preserve or natural preserve or green belt, as we call it. Yeah. And there was a great interest in that aspect of German unification in Korea. And mm. so we started to work with various entities, NGOs uh, like KFEM, the big environmental federation, but also with counties and with provinces on developing sustainably the border area. And as um, the readers being here in South Korea know, Korea had a really super exciting development, but it was very concrete heavy. That is, it was a development of roads, of uh, apartments, and uh, nature sometimes suffered a lot from mm. that and we said you still have these areas and it would be good to in a way think how we can preserve them and at the same time make them available to people maybe for leisure activities or for enjoying the nature and then uh, one thing we did which is a little bit out of the uh, transgresses beyond the nature aspect is that we tried to match up cities or um, districts here in South Korea with similar ones in the former border area of West Germany. Mm. So we have these three city partnerships now or, or district partnerships of Bayreuth district with Kosong and then later of um, Cholon and Batersfeld and of Yonchon in Gyeonggi-do uh, and Hof in, in Bavaria. And then we have also a provincial partnership of the Kangwon province with the Upper Franconia area, which is the border area in uh, between uh, Bavaria and Saxony, so in the old border, which fortunately is not a border anymore right. between East and West Germany. Okay, so conservation in North Korea. Uh, we don't really think of, of North Korea as a state that's very interested in the environment. We think of it being interested in you know, development and and weapons, basically. So what is the state of the natural environment and the ecology in North Korea? How is it? Is it significantly different to that of South Korea after the 70 years of separation and development? Can I uh, use a few days to answer that question? <laughs> it's, a, it's not so easy. First of all, I want to point our readers to the fact that there have been twice published reports, State of the Environment, by the United Nations Environmental Program and the government of North Korea. And I find them quite, uh, the, they're a little older now. Last yeah, when? One, I think the last one is from 2011 or 12. Is okay. You find them in the internet and they are quite enlightening and go through all issues of so-called brown environment protection, huh. that is pollution issues, but also air and water, etc., but also green issues like biodiversity and if you can send uh, if you have those links if you can send absolutely. them i'll try to have somebody here at nk news put them on the the website when this podcast goes live so people can look at those uh, un reports that would be very interesting and by, by the way that is one of the benefits really of international cooperation this we f sometimes forget but data is not easy to come by especially mm. in a country like the north and if you are a member of these um let's say of the ramsar convention of the flyway partnership of the uh, even work with unep there are these regular or unccd the united nations framework convention to combat desertification you are regularly asked to do updates and some of them are really very interesting though clearly the state gives them out and they get give out the data like every other state what they want 
So, and now coming to the environment itself. First of all, as a socialist country, North Korea was established as a very orthodox socialist country, Soviet style. We sometimes forget that. We always look at the unique features. But one thing what they all had in place was a system of environmental preservation, of designating national monuments, which include natural monuments. Mm. They have their animals, like South Korea actually, numbered uh, national monument number so-and-so. And so they had from a very early time a certain system in place. That system worked considerably well, but clearly it, it was hampered by development efforts, like again in the other countries, there were conflicts between the wish to develop and to preserve. And then the famine came, and really we had an ecological catastrophe that was a deforestation. No. So we think that at least 40%, this, this, this whole country was really densely um, forested with up to 80, 85%, sometimes as I said, but now almost half of the forest disappeared or degraded severely. So we have lots of bushlands. And if you look in the summer, you drive along green mountains, it's not so bad, but then you see it's really all very shrubs only. Yes, and it's very, what you call what low-level vegetation. Exactly, and, and it's really, it's not a, a matter of having a nice tree to look at, yeah. but it's a matter of life and death for them because... A lot of the devastating flooding they have and a lot of the landslides they have, which regularly people die from, Mm. many people die from, are related to the fact that the forests in the monsoon area cannot fulfill their function to filter this rain and to preserve the rain and slowly give the water down. And so droughts and floods are related to this problem. Uh So we have on the one hand these problems, which South Korea had much uh, longer before and resolved since the 1960s. On the other hand, we have a very slow development, a low mechanization, for Mm. example, in agriculture, which also means there are certain types of, for example, uh, habitat, which are still there, which do not exist anymore, are almost completely destroyed in the south. Now, the most important maybe for biodiversity are large tidal flats. North Korea, unfortunately, now is still the last country in the region still doing reclamation. Ah. South Korea stopped, China stopped, Japan stopped, but they do it by hand mostly, very few machines, very slowly. And so they have still uh, fantastic tidal flats. And if you think now you were a bird flying from Australia to Alaska, which many birds do actually, uh, and you have to stop over and, and get your body fat, in South Korea, 75% of tidal flats disappeared in the last uh, 50 years wow. because it was reclaimed the land. Uh, in North Korea, they are still there. So North Korea became relatively more important over time as a stopover place, as a wintering place. And fortunately, our partners in the Ministry of Environment, they see that, and they did a lot of efforts to preserve certain places. Moondog is really very representative for that, but there are lots of other places too. There are now a few organizations involved. There's a very active organization from New Zealand, which is called Miranda Trust, uh, who is doing actually started where they have a wetland in New Zealand and the birds there also f- uh, winter or stop over in North Korea. Ah. So they went there, did surveys there, gave advice. Then there are bigger organizations like IUCN, WWF, uh, the Ramsar Convention, Flyway Partnership working with us. So we have, we're quite happy to be in a team of very good experts there and we try to promote this uh, work on conservation. And as part of that, as an additional benefit, there's the international meetings where we have also a coordination in the Yellow Sea, especially between North and South Korea. Now, it may be a little surprising for some of our listeners that uh, the, the Hans Heidel Foundation, which is um, closely related to or connected to the Christian Social Union, Union which is a center-right party from Bavaria, uh, we don't often have conservatives excited about conservation, although the, the name is, is quite similar. But uh, yeah, is, is that a surprise? No, I wouldn't say so. It's, it's a surprise in, in popular thinking maybe, but mm. it, actually you mentioned it. Conservation is part of conservatism, to yeah. conserve the things which are worth to conserve. And actually the first... In Germany, the first Minister of Environment was in Bavaria. That's where the well, this foundation is closely yeah. related to. And they were also pushing for a lot of conservation projects, like the first natural park we had in mm. Germany was also in Bavaria. And, and so there were a lot of um, points where we can work on. But it is true, 
uh, there's other parties, like especially in Germany, the Green Party, which is much closer related in popular mind to environmentalism. Mm. But uh, we don't mind so much. And for us, it's really important to see uh, conservation is very good and in its own. We want every project we do with North Korea to be good on its own, to stand alone. But still, there's something behind it, not a sinister purpose, but there's this hope that through these projects, we can also connect people. And I think in the last years, before the corona crisis, it worked quite well. And we hope we can, after the crisis, which is hopefully soon over, go on again with this path. So uh, reforestation, obviously uh, very important. You, you mentioned the, the connection to droughts and floods in North Korea. Uh, after the Korean War stopped, uh, paused in 1953, there really wasn't a lot of forest cover anywhere on the Korean Peninsula, was there? Well, actually, uh, to be really honest, um, it started much earlier. We had for centuries an overuse of forests. And that was in, in Korea mainly a so-called common pool uh, problem. That is, basically, many forests didn't belong to some person, but were communal or were, were for all the villages. So villages went in and usually they took more out than they replanted. Because on the individual level, that makes sense. Yeah. It's a very common problem in many, many countries, also in European countries. And only when the Japanese came, they established property rights, mostly for themselves yeah. then, for these forests. And then when they left, um, forests again were devastated by the war. But, mm. but we have these old pictures of early 20th century Korea where you already can see where population is, so where we have villages or where we have temples. Often the forests are very thin also. And this is because the wood is used for fuel, right? For cooking for and heating. For fuel and also there is this um, uh, desire in, in North Korea now to um, establish fields on the slopes there. Ah. Because with a, a famine, a new policy set in uh, where you had no legal right to go to the mountains and plant food there, but where it was tolerated on, on certain slopes that um, the people planted food there. Right. And later, even that was formalized by projects on agroforestry, which among others, the Swiss Development Corporation very actively yes. promoted. So they worked with so-called user groups in the forest. Now, agroforestry was a certain improvement, but generally it's very, very bad to have uh, these slopes used for agriculture because the tree cover gets away, the monsoon rain comes, the soil is washed away in a few years and the good soil. The yields are very poor. Mm. And where do the people get the supplies to go there? Basically, they steal it from their cooperatives. They take it from their cooperatives. Uh. So it's, uh, and, and then on the other hand, the fields in the, in the plains, which should be more yielding, are neglected. Right. But on an individual level, that makes sense. If they say uh, the one food is for everybody, we take it away from you. The other, it's your food, clearly. So, the, so it, it, part of the problem stems from a, a conflict of interest between the, uh, the national policies of communal farms or collective farms uh, and the sort of individual policies of this is my own um, garden, I can grow this and I can sell it at the local market. So that, that, that's the competition between those two interests right exactly and it's it's again it's a, a very well-known problem for socialist countries and just to give one figure on that which i find very impressive in the soviet union private gardens were two percent of the land but produced 30 percent of the food goodness how does that work yeah, how does that work there you see you see the people are interested in raising their yeah. own food because they sell it but not in interesting raising food which is taken away from them so a structural problem is there but that structural problem is very difficult to address because it goes really to the core beliefs of um, the founding also of dprk as a state where uh, collectivization had a very important role or let's say taking the land away from big landowners and giving it to the people, but then collectivize it. So uh, this has not yet been solved, but we have now better policies on slopes there and official agroforestry policies, which help a lot. So what are, you, what are the Hans Seidel Foundation's goals in, uh, uh, in terms of reforestation in North Korea? What are you actually trying to do? Well, as we said, we are not uh, there to, to do model projects or so mainly, but we are do there for doing training. So we said sustainable forestry is a field 
if you think of the whole area of forestry, clearly things are interrelated. If you have no fuel, you will cut down trees. If you have no food, you will cut down trees. But among these things, one thing is you need also well-educated foresters. And that was the niche we were looking at. And we said we work with an institution there, which was the Forest Management Research Institute uh, under the Ministry of Environment. And we do training with them. And we did very, very intensive training on a number of topics. Let's say, for example, biological pest control, watershed management, because water is so important mm. in, in the forest, on seedlings, on uh, establishing um, uh, tree f um, uh, farms. So, uh, so there were a lot of uh, things we did. And then uh, as part of a project financed by the European Union from 2014 to 2017, we also established a small tree nursery ourselves ah. in a place in, in Taedonggun, which is not very far from Pyongyang, um, but still needs uh, almost two hours to go there through small side, unpaved side roads. Yes. And uh, uh, had a 100 hectare model afforestation there. And the FMI, or partner, does a lot of research there also on uh, quite interesting issues how can we do better trees for climate change can we plant different species mm -hmm. can we plant them in a different way uh, and uh, they established now very nice tree nursery and and model plant there when, when we have the chance we still try to go there and we are very happy there's a very able manager mr re dr re actually of the uh, Forest Management Research Institute, and she uh, does very well. So, uh, just for our listeners, there, a tree nursery, as I understand it, this is where um, where uh, young trees or seeds are planted and grown into uh, small trees or saplings, mm -hmm. which are then later transplanted to another area where they'll grow into full trees. Is that the idea? That that's the idea, but it it's actually not just. Uh, well, it it starts with. Uh, Willow tree, you can just cut off a twig and put it in the earth and it ah. becomes a new tree. And you have others where you need a very complicated maybe coating of the seeds or yeah. so. So there's a lot to it to how to grow them also in um, sufficient numbers and sufficiently strong and sufficiently fast to uh, get the uh, mountains covered with the trees. Mm. Okay, let's move on to uh, birds and wetlands because I've still got a couple of topics before I let you go. Uh, so you, you've explained the importance of the tidal flats, which uh, basically, number one, they're disappearing, but number two, uh, for for migratory birds, they're a crucial stop. So tell us about the East Asian-Australasian flyway. What is this? Mm. Well, the flyway itself, it's just a description how the birds move. And you see, really, if you see the world, you have... Mainly, you have movements north-south. Uh -huh. Clearly, that's related to the climate. The seasons. To the seasons, yeah. exactly. You have sometimes also lateral movements, but mostly north-south. And then you have birds which come from Russia and Alaska, and they winter here now. I was yesterday in Wasong in a beautiful wetland, saw the stellar sea eagle, one of the biggest birds in the world, wow. uh, coming from probably from Russia and wintering here now. So where, then, where was this? Did you say Rasong? Uh, oh, Hwasong. Hwasong, I'm sorry. sorry. Near Suwon down yes, there. Yes, in Gyeongmyo, yeah, yeah. uh, which is also a wetland uh, which is similar to the one in Moondog. And actually, we ah. hope once we can connect them, yeah. we, they're both on the flyway. And then you have birds who are here in the summer, um, let's say barn swallows, and they are now in Australia. And then you have birds who fly from uh, Australia or New Zealand up to Alaska, all the way up and That's down. That's a long way. Some of them do it even nonstop. We have now recorded birds who fly 12,000 kilometers. Very small birds, yeah. maybe 20 centimeters, 30 centimeters, and they fly 12,000 kilometers nonstop. Then they are almost dead. They're really Gee. exhausted. But there are lots of others, especially bigger ones, let's say cranes, swans, yeah. geese. And they need stopovers. That is, they fly a few hundred kilometers, uh -huh. and they need to land and need to feed, because if not, they have not enough energy. So how long can that journey, if you're not flying long stop, if you're doing the stopovers like the cranes, how long can that take? Is that weeks, well, days? Well, that can take weeks, uh, even months. Even months. And you are sometimes surprised. Uh, for some, really, they stay in Russia. It's like a summer holiday. They stay four or <laughs> five weeks and come back. They breed uh, fastly, and then they come back. It's really... Uh, and, and for others, it's they stay there three, four months, Others stay there as long as it's too cold. Like swans, they move on when the ice is coming. They move to the next. 
next lake, which yeah. is ice-free and ah. so on. So we have very different strategies. But the interesting thing is if you look at the geography of this part of the world, yeah. the Yellow Sea is really in the center. And so we have millions and millions of birds going through in the Yellow Sea, then the Korean Peninsula. And that means both coastlines are so important, yeah. while the West Coast with the tidal flats may be most important. Right. Wow. Okay. So uh, now, the, the, but also the East Asian Australasian Flyway is now a, 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 it's a it's more than just a, a natural thing. It's now a human agreement or it's exactly. a convention? Well, well um, some 10, 15 years ago, the so-called Flyway Partnership was founded. And that's quite unique. We have uh, under all these climate agreements and environmental agreements, we have new types of partnership. And this is one of these that is a government, INGO, NGO partnership. That is, we have now 18 government partners, right. including Russia, including the US, including uh, China, South Korea, Japan, and also North Korea now. And we have 18, I guess now, um, non, non-governmental partners. And we are very proud to be since three years also one of them. Mm. But there's much bigger ones. Then there's some international organizations. We have a special interest like the FAO, which is interested in avian influenza issues, which are clearly related to birds also. So we, we have all these partners and they come together regularly. We have working groups. We have a scientific center now in in china of this flyway partnership and we have a network of so-called flyway network sites and two of these sites which is uh, in in dprk north korea one is moondog on the west coast and one is on the east coast kumya and we hope that rason will also be added kumya Uh is a little north of wonsan and is also Mm. very important site and here on the korean peninsula to say that maybe the most famous Birds we look at are, for example, cranes, right? Because they are also so symbolic for Korea. Yeah. And it's so wonderful to see, like in a place like Cholon, in the center of the DMZ, yes. um, the um, red-crowned cranes or the white-naped cranes. They fly every day over the border, and you see really for the birds the border doesn't exist, but for the people it still exists. And we hope also symbolically to connect both sides. And this brings me exactly to uh, a quote. Now, on your website, uh, which people who are interested can find at uh, korea.hss.de, you have a brochure titled Transboundary Nature Cooperation, Protection of Wetlands in the DPR Korea, which people can uh, look at and find more information about your projects. But uh, in that brochure, it is accurately stated, nature knows no man-made boundaries. And it's funny how we humans think that we are the masters of all things. I'm now borrowing from Juche. Uh, but we are limited by these imaginary lines called borders and demilitarized zones, while animals like birds, uh, who we sometimes look down on, uh, you know, bird-brained is, is, a, uh, is a great insult. Uh, but these animals and birds, they're, they're free to come and go as they please. As you say, that they're flying every day backwards and forwards across the demilitarized zone. Uh, yes. There's some irony in that, isn't there's there? An, there's an irony and there's also, in that sense, a symbolic meaning. And still we have to say that we need also to care that they can do this. I mean, they can fly over the border maybe, yeah. but if they have no more habitat left yeah. to stay, that's more a question here in the south now. But also in the north, clearly there are threats to habitats and uh, we really want to work with our partners to see it's so good to have this biodiversity. And it's also not only the biodiversity, it's an indicator. We speak of bioindicators. If the birds are doing well, also the people are doing well. If you think of the uh, tidal flats, they are so important for the livelihood of people in the northern part, much more than in the southern part. You have the shell fishery, you have the fishery itself, you have um, the, what's it, the dashima and, and miok, the, the oh, different, different kinds of seaweed, seaweed they, and they algae harvest and, and so many things. And if the tidal flats disappear, yeah. all this livelihood is gone. Right. And, and there are a lot of studies now seeing that adding a few rice fields doesn't really uh, make up for that. It's right. clearly in our mind, it's always the staple food, but uh, other foods are much better. And also, if you think uh, in terms of peaceful exchange, once there would be trade again in these, they are very sought after in, in Japan, in, in China. You can sell actually this and make a very good profit out of, let's Wait, say, sell shells, what? shells, for example. Oh, the sh- uh, shells. Every, everything, w- w- what you harvest from the sea. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's really a thing you should preserve, not only for 
birds and make a fence around say don't enter but really and, and that's actually the main point of the ramsar convention to have a harmonious life of people and nature together it's not easy and it sometimes sounds like a just like a buzzword or so but but it is really important now you visited uh, north korea quite a lot in, in uh, as part of your work uh, obviously you've seen a lot of changes uh, we i wish we had time to go into that but that would take a few days of course um, has the hans Seidel foundation ever considered having a, a foreigner live up there full-time in north korea to to work on these different projects Clearly, we have uh, dreams and thoughts and, and ideas, but there are limitations. And as I said, there's no official development relations of mm. Germany, of the European Union and uh, North Korea. And so that is not possible. What we do is a little bit under the diplomatic radar, let's say. We do things openly and transparently sure. and with public money, but it's still these are things to connect both sides, to have channels of communication open, but it's different than a full development cooperation. I mean, my personal dream would really to to establish a wetland center in Rason, which I find it's it's not only a very important area, but also understudied. The West Sea, because of China, and so yeah. is much better studied than the East Sea area. And you could have researchers being there maybe full-time or at least part of the year but that will take some time and hopefully better um, a positive political environment now and i know you have a, a great love for for korea for both careers uh, if i could say that if you could would you spend a year up there working on your projects with no time outside north korea well i think i uh, would do it uh, if the framework is right i also have to consider my family my yeah. wife is south korean uh, but if I would abstract from this for a moment, I right. would certainly be interested in doing that. But also, I have to say clearly, uh, I love every time I go to uh, the north, but I also love every time to come back here. That's it, yes. <laughs> now, uh, does the foundation employ any uh, North Koreans full-time? No, we don't employ North Koreans full-time, with the exception of times when we had these uh, EU-funded projects. There's a, that is a very complicated mechanism because you have a topical partner for us, the Minister of Environment, or before it was a Ministry of Trade when we did the Renewable Energy Project. Yeah. And then you have a layer which is uh, basically the um, Minister of Foreign Affairs, and you will get there some assistance assisting the project right. but you couldn't really call it working full-time for Hans Seidel Foundation because right. they are mainly assigned offices to our project yes yeah, so it's project based mm -hmm. yes. yeah but here in South Korea of course you do have a, a, a team of people working for the Hans Seidel Foundation we have a team but it's a small team all our offices are representative offices and there's a reason behind that because we don't want to go into a country and tell them you do this you do that you right. should do it the German way, whatever that is, but rather it is um, we want to work with our partners cooperatively. So we have a small representative office, yeah. but we have lots of partners. Ah. Are you able, when you go to North Korea, are you able to bring any of your South Korean colleagues with you? Very rarely. That means now in 15 years once only. That when is very rare. That is very rarely, yeah. And that is a thing we have to accept. I have a very good colleague, Mr. Glenk, uh, from Germany, uh, and I was lucky once to bring our forest specialist uh, last year into the country, which is from South Korea. And uh, I was very happy to work with her there, but uh, there are limitations. And uh, if we don't bring a big political delegation, it's very, very difficult. Uh, yeah, we haven't actually we haven't discussed that, but sometimes the North Koreans like you uh, to bring political delegations from Germany with you. Well, le let's say. Our work, since we are a political foundation, it's also right. political work. And we are related to certain politicians. And we were very lucky to have one very exceptional man, uh, Mr. Hartmut Koschik, who was for 15 years working in the German parliament on Korean issues huh. and very often visited the North. And actually, he opened the door first for us to go there. And uh, we went together. And then it's clearly also for us very interesting because we see suddenly a different level. We meet yeah. Kim Jong-nam, uh -huh. that was formerly the head of the... He was formerly the, what, the, the president of the People's Pre Presidium, but yeah, also... Presidium the of the Supreme People's Assembly. Assembly. And we, we meet other people in the uh, Assembly or in the Foreign Ministry or in other ministries. So And visit factories, which we do not... Mm. Elsewhere. And clearly, on a personal level, that's very, very interesting mm. too. 
and it's also close to what we would like to do maybe in the future when there's a more broad field of cooperation possible. Now, obviously, this year you haven't been able to go to North Korea because of the coronavirus. Uh, When do you hope to be able to go there again? (laughs) The realistic answer is when China opens the border again and is free to travel, when South Korea stops the quarantine, is free to travel, and Russia is free to travel, then I expect also DPRK, North Uh Korea, to open the border. And that could be maybe only towards the end of next year, hopefully, maybe even later. But we don't know. There might now the difficult economic situation play inside. North Korea might decide to open up earlier for that reason. But uh, what we see now, there's a signs to the contrary, that more diplomats leave the country and isolation seems even to increase. So we are really looking... Uh, you know what what's going on there and it's for us as for everybody else not very easy to go out to evaluate these uh, these these changes which are happening now does not being able to go there affect your projects and the projects that you partner with in a negative way surely it does because we are not able to go there and to support our partners mm. on the other hand we are happy enough to see that our partners go on with their work so for example make small example there were publications they pre- uh, presented themselves uh, especially the minister of environment is extremely successful in placing also environmental information in the various media just yesterday they found a wonderful article on the kumia flyway network site mm. uh, with fantastic photos some of them done by by us also during the surveys and so it's going on but it's not the same density of uh, of, of experience and the training we cannot send trainers there we can send still some uh, information there and we can connect through email but it's not the same okay so you are sometimes able to communicate with them uh, via yes. electronic methods over the years that you've been working with the Hansidel foundation have there been times when you had to cancel or postpone a trip to north korea for other reasons that were not health related yeah there were there were i mean Actually, it's it's a, a stop and go with these projects. And there were reasons when they didn't like what we do here sometimes. We had a project once with the European Union ah. here, which was on human rights, and uh, they disapproved on our partners here. So it was a long time where we couldn't enter. And then there were other projects when they said, mm, you really don't fit in our strategy. We should say that in the first six, seven years, we worked more on economic and business development issues when it was still possible before the real outbreak of the uh, nuclear crisis. And um, so there were these difficulties. Then there was MERS, Ebola, SARS, uh, and and now uh, Corona when they uh, closed the country. So it is a little bit of stop and go. That's I'm very grateful to my foundation that I could work so long here for that because mm-hmm. that helps also to maintain contacts uh, even yeah. through these periods when uh, maybe there's a difficulty uh, through political reasons or through uh, health risks, etc. Now, the last section uh, on German unification, this could be a podcast, of course, by itself. But let's see how far we can get through these questions in the next 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, Dr. Zelliger, your country, uh, Germany, was also divided by the superpowers after the end of World War II, just like Korea. But unlike Korea, it was reunited 30 years ago. How did it feel for you to leave a united country and come to another divided one? It was a little bit of a déjà vu, especially also because though um, my parents are not refugees from the East, but we had a lot of relatives in um, East Germany. And as a child, I sometimes visited them, later regularly visited East Berlin and uh, also uh, other places in in the East. All of this was possible. And suddenly I came into the situation where nothing was possible between North and South. So it was... Uh, in a way very exciting then especially in 2003 when I first came to Pyongyang and it smelled a little bit like East Germany Mm. there is this uh, cheaper coal dust which they burned there this is typical smell and and there were things which I recognized in other ways it was completely different and especially what I found out over the years and it's a little the point I'm really a little bit which grows on me is that we were much more relaxed between east and west when I met my relatives I didn't have to ask anybody for that I mean I had to get a visa from the eastern side but in the west i would never have dreamt of informing anybody to go there and when we talked we didn't talk about politics there were certain issues which you wouldn't touch maybe but we talked about everything 
in, in a quite open way. And here you see all these taboos, all these mm. problems with the legal situation that it's not even for South Koreans allowed to meet North Koreans in most cases if you don't get an explicit permit. And, and we see we are really very far. And that's especially ironic because I, my predecessors always told me when they first came, 1987, Koreans would always say, reunify earlier than you yeah, because yeah. that time they had already read cross talks on and some other right. things while in germany nothing seemed to change uh, uh, and uh, it's interesting how it came differently then and said for korea now uh, former uh, west german chancellor willy brandt famously said in november 1989 shortly after the berlin wall opened jetzt wächst zusammen was zusammen gehört meaning now that we now that which belongs together grows together how do you feel the project of German unification has gone so far? Has the, has the country, in fact, grown together? Has the division healed? Or is there a, a Mauer im Kopf, a Berlin Wall in the head? Well, it's true. There is still a Berlin Wall in the head in the older generation, I would say. And it will not get out. Simply people who grew up there, they will still remember things in both sides. And there will be uh, the jokes uh, over East Germany in the West. They will not die out so mm. soon. Uh, on the other hand, economically, we have fantastic journey of East Germany, though sometimes we only look at the fact that yeah, they have still 80% of the Western niveau or level. But we shouldn't look like that, compare them to all other East European states. They did fantastic. And, and then the most positive note on that is we always have uh, interns from all around the world in our office, uh, mostly from Germany, clearly, and from Korea, but also from other states. And among the German interns, uh, maybe until 10 years ago, if I would have asked, are you Aussie or Wessie? Are you from the East or the West? Immediately, they would have known what it is. They would have said, I'm from this or that part. But if I ask now, these are people who uh, were born in the year 2000 or so, they don't even understand the question. Huh. They don't feel it. They would say I'm from Saxony, which is in the East, yeah, or yeah. from Bavaria in the West, but they would never feel like Aussie or West, like Eastern. These categories are really gone now. And so it's a generational uh, change exactly, that's required. Yeah. Now, when you go to North Korea, do North Koreans ask you about German unification? And if so, what do you say to them? Well, it happened in the past more than now, which might partly be related to our partners, partly related also to the way the German unification is seen. Clearly, it is seen as a taboo topic because mm. the way Germany unified, they don't want to unify. Mm -hmm. They meaning the functionaries we meet. That's really an important point. We don't meet normal people. We only talk to the people which are our minders and our partners, which are all part of the state system. That's you have to accept if you yeah. go there. So clearly, when we go, for example, to Germany, we also go often in Berlin, in Munich, and we go to places related to German unification and they get very interested. Oh, you mean you, you take North Korean we, we, partners we with you to Germany? Which is not very often. Mm. Now it's even very, very difficult yeah. from the getting visa for them from right. our side. But it happened last time, 2015, we visit these places and they're very interesting, interested in hearing about the German yeah. experience. So they, they are interested in learning, uh, but they're also, as you say, it's a taboo. Exactly. Now, what about South Koreans? Do they ask you about German unification? Every day you can find a seminar in Seoul which says lessons from German unification. And I'm a little bit clearly, it's on the one hand, it's our raison d'etre, our, our reason we are here. Yes. But on the other hand, you feel it might go sometimes in the wrong direction. There's no blueprint there, mm. so many differences. There are things to compare and to learn. Learning is always good, but it's a little bit uh, ritualistic here that mm. you have these things. But on the other hand, then, there's also a genuine interest and it changes over time. There was a time when they were interested in how expensive it is. It yes. was the 90s when they heard a lot of things, how problematic that is. Then there was a time when they were interested in pre-unification management, like mm. now also under the Moon government, which I think is uh, sensible to do, to say, before we talk of unification, let's talk about living more or less peacefully together. What can we do together? Mm. There are times when they're interested in in, in so many things in building up a, a middle class of entrepreneurs or in this or that very in the meteorological service in forest there are more than 300 south koreans who did their phd about german unification wow. and that's a little bit of an overkill 
That is a lot. Uh, what interests me, are there any areas that you think the South Koreans are not focusing, any areas of German unification? I mean, obviously, there's always a lot of interest in economic and industrial integration and things like that. But are there areas you think are under uh, played and and really need more emphasis in South Korea. Well, on on the whole, you find for every area, as I said, you find somebody who did his PhD about it and wrote about it. Mm. But I would say the one which is maybe misunderstood or mm. underestimated is really this question of pre-unification management of division, yeah. and that mainly includes, in my opinion, the fact that South Korea is a very uh, thriving democracy, a super strong economy, and still they are not confident enough mm. to tell their own citizens, okay, if you go to North Korea, you go on your own risk. You are not allowed to do something illegal, spying or whatever, but you go. And, and can't even look at a North Korean website or magazine yeah, or And newspaper. even a defector, if he wants to return, let him return. Mm. We had these people, right. who are not many of them, most of them went the other way and wanted dearly to come to the other way yeah. but this this relaxedness and there's a word shouldn't maybe mention it but the national security law as it is it's a big taboo work mm. and i think there must be some modernization of north korea policy also regarding for example reading uh the, the uh, very boring newspaper the Rodong Shinmun, oh, which yeah. will be done in this office i guess every day very intensely uh but uh th there are other things where i really think uh this modern and confident democracy should act modern and confidently. Do you ever say this to South Korean government people? And if so, I how do they respond? I try to say it every time in a meeting and in a conference. Sometimes it's cut out of uh, podcasts. I uh -huh. hope not here. No, and no, it, it, is, it is clearly a, a, a difficult topic. And I cannot expect a um, civil servant from, let's say, from Tongilbu or from any, or some people to say, okay, we changed all our system and all our beliefs we had for 70 years. And I, I re we have our own taboos, yeah. which are related to the national Socialism clearly, right. where we are very touchy and can understand it, but still, um, the time is a little bit running out because we had letters, we had packages, we had travels, and here's nothing. Yeah. So, if you want to preserve the unity of the nation, if I say it with pathos now, they really should work for that. I've always wondered, uh, well, for a long time, I've wondered if if the South Korean government. You know, it, when when Moon had those meetings with uh, with Kim Jong Un, if he had said, "Listen, uh, we will pay you uh, ten million dollars a year just to receive mail from from southern relatives and send them to uh, their northern families," you know, or or whatever, the, however, how much do you want for me to send mail to to you uh, from South Korea? Uh, I wonder if that's ever been tried. Do you do you know if that's uh, if a, a postal exchange has ever been actually looked at or, or proposed? I think it, it has been proposed, but not as you just said it. And I would be also careful. I mean, monetary incentives are important. Yeah. But on the other hand, the North Koreans are very proud and they did their lessons from the German unification and from the whole Eastern Bloc situation. Yeah. And one of their lessons is uh, if you allow for opening it will be very, very difficult to control the flow of events afterwards. Mm. But I also would say you always have to bring it up again and maybe not so closely connected, but you you, you would, I think, get maybe results if you pushed it more. Mm -hmm. And But here the main focus is always on big governments on yeah. that project, railways, right. uh, 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 Industrial, industrial complex parks, yeah. which is not bad in itself if it would work but it never works so let's start with very small steps private meetings maybe even in the third country first and maybe then mail exchange or something i think it can develop over time and that was how we experienced it though in germany there was no strategy behind mm. it simply if you look back we can say that was a just happened organically exactly uh before i finish i want to could you say a few words um about the intranet in north korea and how what impact you feel that's having well um we were working uh, with the central tree nursery in north korea which is in, in pyongyang a, a big and extremely well-run um tree nursery and there 
uh, in as part of our youth uh, funded project we established a center where they set up a website in the intranet called golden mountains which is a kind of propaganda word for reforestation mm. in north korea because all mountains in the autumn side should ah, be golden yes. from the trees sure and uh, it was really interesting to see that in a very few years, three years basically, they uploaded more than 30,000 texts there, including video lectures which were subtitled mm. or um, they had a question and answer section and they had more than 2 million clicks. They register every click, so the intranet is quite well observed. Noted, and, yeah. and yes, But it was good to see this is a very topical website. Ah. I mean, it's not a shopping mall. Yeah, yeah. And, and still it was very very well used and that shows to me mm. how eager they are to use there they are also like the south koreans maybe they have they, they like to use new technology even if they have a much less access to it yeah but now you can go to any provincial library you can go to kimchak university kim Il-sung university and all of them and many other places in the country more are added and there you can access this information and we hope it makes our work sustainable because now foresters can work there and they work even very far from Pyongyang, cannot travel to Pyongyang, it's impossible, but they can ask a question, put it on there, I have this and this problem. They yeah. can upload a photo and say, here, look, there's a, a sickness in this tree, yeah. what should I do? And, and then they, they will be answered, and I find that's a fantastic ah. way, and we have more of this, plus other things we know now that the cell phones have hundreds of games, yeah. hundreds of movies but all and books, but they have all uh, shopping malls and the navigation of uh, Pyongyang, and it's growing this system. And I think it makes the citizens on the whole, it's not the internet, but it makes them more comfortable and more empowered in their uh, field they work in. Interesting. Uh, there's a lot more that we could say about that, but I, I, we have to wrap it up. So uh, you've been in Korea many years. Do you intend to stay? If I um, can do this exciting work again, I'd love to stay until unification. Mm. Don't know if I ever see it, but uh, that's our hope. Well, that does bring me to uh, my final question. Are you hopeful for positive future outcomes on the Korean Peninsula in your lifetime? When I was young, I asked my father, will there ever be German unification? And he said, not in my lifetime. My father is still living. Yeah. Unification is 30 years old. So it's so difficult to make a prediction but yeah. clearly i wish the koreans north and south that they come together that this terrible border disappears and i wish them to have a peaceful development and if i would have no hope at all why should i do this work so there is a certain hope but they, it should be salted with realism can i say that in english yes, seasoned with realism seasoned with realism yes but so what we gives should you hope be over the top there but there's certainly a hope that we say this terrible division has to end and where does your hope come from well the hope comes from the people north yeah. and south which are working eagerly for a better future and under whatever conditions and i know the conditions in the north are completely incomparable and i am not so worried that a young South Korean in Busan doesn't think about unification because the West German young people also didn't think mm. about unification. The desire will come from the North and the preconditions need also some able politicians here in the South which are daring and not only daring to pro, to ask for a new airport or for a new uh, railway line but really to let people work themselves and, and connect themselves. Well, it, thank you once again for joining me today, Dr. Ben Adzelig. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you liked what you heard on this podcast, visit us at nknews.org, your trusted source for updates on everything North Korea, written and produced by field specialists. Become a member today at nknews.org. Also, don't forget to have a look at the Hans Eidel Stiftung's or Hans Eidel Foundation's website, which is korea.hss.de. And if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Uh, Dr. Zelliger, is the Hans Eidel Foundation an NK Pro subscriber? Yes, we are because we need that for our daily work and it's very useful. Excellent. Well, I hope that convinces all of our listeners to also become subscribers. Thanks very much. 